0: Before we start, I wanted to t- tell you all something. You know, you can get as excited as you want during worship. This is not, th- as small as we are right now, this is not a place where you got to worry about it, okay? I'll tell you a funny story, an embarrassing story, but it wasn't funny. Um, I was serving at a church in Texas, and I was playing on the worship team in the midst of the chemo and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, I was sitting in back, and all I was doing was playing acoustic guitar. I wasn't leading. And it was just a very powerful time of worship. And I'm playing along, and right in the middle of one of the songs, I went, yes, Lord! And the leader turned around and went, and I went, and afterwards, the pastor came up and goes, thank you. (laughs) But the leader didn't ask me to play much after that. You know, I don't think he liked it. so. That's not us here. You guys, feel free, shout, clap. If you want to dance in the aisle, dance in the aisle. You know, enjoy the worship. Give God the glory. Is he not worthy? He's worthy. Big time worthy, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning as we move into the, the hard in some ways sorrowful passage, but Lord it's a great passage to rejoice with. And I pray that this morning we have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand and a heart to respond to you. Holy Spirit, you're welcome. Teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me say this a thousand times in the last two years, but we hear it on TV when I watch the news. They, they say life has really changed. America has changed. But it's not just America. It's the world. Our world changed that quick. You're going, is this the depressing thing that's going to carry through the whole thing? Yes. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. But I want you, if you can this morning, if, I want you to listen with the ears of your heart. Now, I'm not saying check your mind at the door, because you will never hear me say that, because we've got to learn to use this. We've got to learn to think. But there's not a big distance between these two. But listen with your heart, because if we can grab what we're about to talk about, this next little section, I believe it'll change the way we will face the world we live in right now and what we're going through. Life can be filled with suffering, can it not? If, if we did a poll right now, I'm sure that every one of us is going through something, some huge, some not so huge, but either way, it still can be a very time of suffering, whether it be sickness, whether it be marriages, whether it be finances, whether it be whatever. Life is filled with suffering. Now, if you, if you ascribe to the prosperity gospel, if you're suffering, then God's mad at you, and you're in sin. Well, that's one of the biggest unbiblical lies that you can listen to. Jesus said in John 16, 33, he said this, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me, You may have peace. Why do we need peace? Because of this. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. The Christian's response to suffering must be immersed in the promises of God and his character given to us in the scripture. If we're going to face life today if we're going to face what we have to face, if we're going to face the times that are ahead, because let's think about this. As I was preparing this this week, I was thinking back of when I uh, accepted the Lord, and then a year or so later, I felt the call to ministry. And when you're 19 years old, you have great aspirations for ministry. You think you're gonna be the next Billy Graham. People will flood the altar every time you preach. You will pastor a church that will love and adore you and no one will ever get mad at you. No one will ever leave the church. In fact, they will come from other churches because your church and the preaching of the word there is so magnificent. Survey says, and, <laughs> wrong dream. Because you have these aspirations. We think back. I mean, I was thinking, I was telling Denise, you know, that at my age right now, at 64 years old, I thought back then I would be pastoring a small little country church and it'd be just wonderful. Birds singing every Sunday morning, you know, plenty to, to share, never have to worry about a thing, and everybody just adored one another. That's TV. And if you think about your life, where you're at now, where you thought you would be now, back then, is qu- not quite the picture you had, right? You're going, you're depressing me, don't make me think. I want us to think. I want us to face this, because when we face this, and we face the disappointments, and when we face the times of suffering, when we face the betrayals, when we face the, whatever we may face that hurt us, that's when we will begin seeing the healing of God it's when we disguise it put it in the back and never touch it is when it haunts us forever you're going can I leave now no okay the Christian response to suffering must be immersed in the promises of God and his character given to us in the scriptures the Bible promises no present relief from suffering in this life. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, you will not suffer. Yet. Yet. We have an example to follow when we suffer. When we face those hard moments, when it seems like there's no hope, when it seems like there's no help, when it seems like our whole world crashed upon, you know, down and, the, and all the walls and everything came crashing down and we're going, God, what, do you, what happened? What happened? What do we do now? God is in the middle of that. We as believers have someone to hold on to, but more than that, we have an example on how to, how to walk through it. Let me show you. It says in 1 Peter 2.21, and we're gonna look at this later on. For you have been called for this purpose. Do you know what the purpose is? Is when you go back a couple of verses, you know what the purpose is? Suffering. Who wants to read that passage? Ever? Let's be real. You have been called to this, for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, or leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And we're going to unpack that a little later. Here's where we're going today. We as believers will suffer in this life. This suffering can come through many means, even possibly persecution for Christ's sake. Jesus Christ is our example as a standard for a God-honoring response in the midst of suffering. Do you know one of the greatest witnesses you... One of them, one of the greatest witnesses you can have upon your friends and your family is how you walk through the hard times in your life. Because people are watching. You don't think so, but people are watching. They're watching how you face, they're watching how you respond. And the greatest witness is to walk through it with the grace and the power and the love of Christ. Christ. Why do you think Christ was called the suffering servant? Isaiah 53. Mark, all of Mark, the whole book we've been studying for over two years has been called the suffering servant. Here we go. Mark chapter 14, turn, turn with me. Now that I've got you totally bummed out, let's go on. Look at verse 53. Now, we're going to read this in small sections as we go along instead of reading it one big thing and then coming back to it. Look at verse 53. For they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now, I want to say real quick, Kelly did a fantastic job last week, and I know you all know that, and you affirmed it, and you told her. She did a great job in unpacking the betrayal in the garden. But now, Jesus has just been arrested They took him away. His disciples, what did they do? They fled. Didn't he say, remember he told them they would do that? They would all leave him? And Watch what happens. Here's where we're at. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Let's stop there, okay? The inconsistent accusations. Jesus was taken, now here we go. Jesus was taken, now I'm gonna use police terms on a couple of things. They took him to a holding cell. You know what that was? It was Annas' house. Now, who was he? In John, excuse me, in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, it tells us, well, you won't look at it, but you can read it. And by the way, you can follow along with these notes on our app, under media, under resources, and sermon notes are right there. Okay? He suffers under Annas. What did I mean? In John chapter 18, verse 12 through 14, it tells us that Jesus was held at the house of Annas. Who was Annas? He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas was the high priest years before. Annas had five men, five boys, that became priests and one son-in-law. They all became high priests over the years. But Caiaphas was the high priest at this time at Jesus' arrest. And so what they did is they took Jesus to Annas' house. Why did they do that? For this reason. First, Jewish law stipulated that the council was supposed to meet only in daylight hours, according to the Mishnah Sanhedrin, chapter 4, verse 1, believe it or not. Okay, I looked it up, and that's exactly what it says. After Annas failed to trap Jesus, now why did they put him in Annas? Because during that time, while he was at Annas' house, Caiaphas was calling all of the Sanhedrin together to meet at his house. He was getting the council ready to question and condemn Jesus while Jesus was hanging out, for lack of a better term, in the holding cell at Annas' house with some of the temple guards. Interesting, huh? So what is he doing? He's suffering during this time. You're going, how? We're going to see. Annas' failed attempt to trap Jesus in his words and some physical abuse by the temple guards. After that, he sends Jesus off to Caiaphas. Now, that starts in verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they were not finding any. Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus suffers under Caiaphas. How did he suffer under Annas? He was questioned under false testimony. As far as we know, he said nothing. And just before he was leaving, you can look it up in the other gospels, the the temple guards smacked him around a little bit. So he's suffering. He's getting smacked around by the so-called people that were supposed to be, and that he came to save. Ever been there? Ever had family members hurt you and you've done nothing? And you're going, I care about you. No, you don't. Get in the ministry. People do it to pastors and and staff members all the time. It happens in the church. The church is not perfect. Not yet. With inconsistent testimonies against Jesus, two witnesses step forward with their lies, twisting Jesus' words. Let's look at it. Let's look at verse uh, 57. Some stood up and began to uh, give false testimony against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Look at verse 60. Let's start in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. That's the purpose. They were going to do whatever they could to put him to death. And let me tell you something. This is going to sound kind of hard, but it's true. There will be those that will come into your life that will do everything they can to destroy you. There will be those that you will face sometime in your life. They will want to do nothing else but destroy your reputation in some way, shape, or form. That's suffering. And it's because, many times, of what Christ is doing in you. Y'all are going, ooh, this is real heavy. It is. But hang on, wait till the end. Watch this. Verse 60. They did not uh, find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up uh, and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept, what? Silent. He was oppressed. Why is this true? Why? Why Why? is this? What was the purpose of this? Why did he keep silent during it all? Look what Isaiah says in 53, verse 7. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now stop. Oppressed. In the Hebrew it means oppressed. Afflicted in Hebrew means afflicted. Tough times. Look what he did. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before the shears, so he did not open his mouth. Why? Well, number one, the first thing is that prophecy was being fulfilled. There's a reason. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Now, let me show you something else. Jesus' refusal to speak gave no appearance of legitimacy to the mock trial and to the lies that echoed through the room. Let me tell you something. You know one of the greatest things we can do when we're being accused is shut up. Is We don't have to say anything. If you know what you did was right, there's no reason to defend. Jesus had done nothing wrong. And in that, he kept his mouth shut because the moment he opened his mouth and started to argue down, he would give some legitimacy to the mock trial that was going on. Am I making sense this morning? I was told this morning to kind of calm down when you do this because you don't want to give any, but I can't. Because let me tell you something, my friends, it's gonna, (laughs) my wife's in the back going, Baby, you know what this is? Fat chance. I'm not doing it. Okay. When we, I don't want to lose track on this. Now, when we try to defend, the Bible says where there's many words, Sin sin is not absent. And I like what it says in the King Jimmy. It says sin abounds. When we try to defend, if someone is purposely, we're just using this example. If someone is purposely trying to accuse you and they are just bent on this, do you think your argument is going to make any difference? No. So what's the best thing to do? Shut up. And that is in the Bible. So don't get offended by me saying shut up. Be quiet. Close your mouth. Because the more you argue, you're giving legitimacy to what they're saying. What did Shakespeare say? Thou protestest too much? Thank you, brother. Got my back on that, don't you? Okay, good. Now, let's look at verse 61. Let's go back to Mark. Go back to Mark. Back to Mark. You are saying I was in Mark. You should have been in Matthew. But now we're in Mark. Go to Mark, chapter 14, verse 61. He kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Let's keep reading. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Now, you know where what the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. It's a messianic title that came from Isaiah 53 and through the Old Testament. It's a messianic title. Let's go on. But you will see, again, it says, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming with, uh, with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have, uh, do we have uh, of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does, this, uh, how does it seem to you? And again, it says, and they all condemned him to, des- to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Jesus gives a definitive de- declaration. He's asked her, Are you the Christ? Now, here's, here's another thing. Here's a, here's a non-police term, okay? This is an athletic term, which I am not an athlete. This is the full court press, okay? Meaning what? Meaning this is their last-ditch effort to trap him. All the testimonies that were given by the people were no good. They were inconsistent. No consistency to it. So they come and they give him the point blank answer. Because if he answers a certain way on this, they got him. Are you the Christ? And he says, I am. Now let's dispel something real quick. You'll hear many times that when he said, I am, he was saying the name of God. There's no proof in that. Why do I say this? Now, listen to me. Because of the context of the Greek here. There's really no proof of that. Now, they may have understood it that way. And I believe he was saying that. But many times we preach it and we go, he's saying, I am. He was actually answering a question. When you say, hey, are you Bradley Cox? I am. <gasps> he said God's name. See my point. Most this has been this passage. Those two words have been a debatable thing all through the last two thousand years. Some say he was saying it. Some say he wasn't. And there's no way to say either way. So whatever you want to believe, that's fine. It is, I think it will be consistent to it. I think when he said "I am," I think they understood that. But it was more just saying "I am the Christ." The Son of God. Now look at this. It's very good. Matthew adds the second part of this question. Now, Matthew 26 63, it says this. When Caiaphas says, Are you the Christ? Well, he kept silent for a while. He didn't answer right away. Matthew says this Caiaphas got frustrated. Look at this. He says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas wanted to trap him. He wanted to nail him on this because he knew if you say what I'm thinking you're going to say, if you say I am, we've got you and we can execute you. Jesus kept silent. Caiaphas kept frustrated. You ever been in an argument like that? You are being accused of something you didn't do? And he didn't quite answer, and the frustration built. I've been in elders' meetings and deacons' meetings where that's happened. And they get so frustrated, I adjure you, by the living God, are you the Christ, the Son of God. That's when Jesus said what we just read, when he said, I am. Now, let's look at this. He was crucified. Well, let me back up. Jesus proved that a person could be in the will of God and be greatly loved by God and still suffer unjustly. Jesus knew that his statement would, steal, would seal his death, but he was ready. He had already determined to submit to the Father's will all the way to the cross. Now, what does that mean? He became, now in this, in this, now I skipped over one. I'm sorry back there. Yeah. In this, he became what is called the perfect example of suffering. He became our perfect example. In fact, in the scriptures it says he was perfected through suffering. But it doesn't mean that he was imperfect. Scripturally, what it means is this. What happened to the lamb that they picked? He was called, when it was examined, he was called what? Perfect. Was the lamb unperfect before then? No. Because they found the lamb that was going to be as perfect as possible for that sacrifice for the sin of the the nation. So that lamb was already perfect. But by being chosen, he became, you understand this? He became the perfect lamb. Jesus was already perfect. And in the midst of the suffering, it showed that he was the perfect lamb and it shows by God saying you will suffer and you will die for the sins of many, he is the perfect lamb. So in his suffering, he became our perfect example because he was already perfect, meaning what? Our standard for suffering. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to stay there pretty much for the rest of the, the time. Y'all still tracking with me? Okay, good. Hang in there. Now, in the midst of suffering and persecution, the Apostle Paul encouraged the Jewish believers to look at their Lord's response to, and his suffering. Paul, I mean, excuse me, not Paul, but Peter. I put Paul down there. No, I said Peter. The Apostle Peter. Peter was writing to the Jews that were dispersed among the nations. That happened, I believe, in Acts chapter 6 or 7, somewhere, 6, 7, or 8. went in there, Okay? And they were dispersed under persecution. And here, these believers were still suffering persecution, and there was more persecution coming. So Peter writes to them on how to walk through the persecution, how to walk through the suffering. Saints, if you can hear me on this and get this, we will be some of the greatest witnesses, thank God, as we walk forward and what's happening in our world, in our nation, and in our lives. Okay? The word example, let's look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now the word example means this. It means example but it means a pattern, it means a copy, it means something to be imitated. We're going to imitate Jesus and how he walked through suffering? Yes. Look what it says. Verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth. When he was crucified, he was crucified as a criminal, even though he had committed no sin. Sin, no crime, and it says no deceit. The word deceit is from the word dulos, which uh, here is used as a general term for sinful corruption, which means this: there was no deceit found in his mouth. How do we suffer when we go through a tough time? Do we argue with the people? Do we argue with our accusers? Do we return evil for evil? Do we return? Uh, Name calling with name calling. When Jesus was suffering, he did not call anybody name. Where there was no deceit found in his mouth, there was nothing. Why? Because we just found out that his words were not sinful. Meaning what? They were not deceptive. He, they couldn't find anything about his words that he said they can truly condemn him for. He gave no reason for the suffering he was going through, except that he was the Christ. The Son of God, and He had to die for the sins of the people. Why well, making sense? I know I've been in—I'm I'm not proud of it—but even in ministry, I've gone toe to toe with people, and when I got done, you can feel the Holy Spirit go. That wasn't necessary, and you walk away. And then the tough part is when God says. I want you to apologize and ask their forgiveness. But Lord, they just accuse, I never did this. You gotta love them. I do? Yeah. And go apologize to them and ask their forgiveness. Let's go on. It says when he was reviled, the word reviled it means verbal abuse. He did not return the abuse. Matthew 26 tells us that. Matthew 27, Luke 23. All through that, when they were reviling him, he never returned it. He kept silent. It says, while suffering. While suffering. What does it say? Suffering is outside trials, outside sufferings. He did not respond with threats or threatening actions. In fact, what did he do? The ultimate was on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, and I believe it was what the fourth word he said, fourth or fifth word he said from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was a blanket statement for everything that just happened in the last 24 to 48 hours. That's the example. He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. When was the last time when we were suffering at the hand of somebody in some way, shape, or form that we asked God to forgive them and we prayed for their forgiveness? And we asked God to bless them. We asked God to show his love to them. That's how Christ suffered. And in that suffering, look at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, You were healed. He became, in the midst of his suffering, he became our perfect substitute. And he became our perfect substitute in his suffering. It says he himself, he himself what? Bore our sins. He himself is an emphatic personalization and stresses that the Son of God voluntarily and without coercion died as the only sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe. That's from A.T. Robertson, Dr. A.T. Robertson. He wrote that, and I would, that. I was sitting at my desk and I read that and it blew me out of the water. It says he bore our sins. It means, the word bore means to carry the massive heavy weight. So he bore the heavy weight of our sin. Why? It says in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 28, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Why did he go through the suffering? Because he was bearing the sin of the world. Really, all who would believe is offered to all the world. But unfortunately, all the world will not believe. And we've got to understand that. There will be those who will choose, purposely choose, not to believe in Christ and not to accept his forgiveness. And they will spend eternity in hell. By their own confession. Am I making sense? So does that apply to us? It does. Because there's times in our walk where we will be unjustly accused. We may be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We may be persecuted because we're a believer. We may be persecuted just because somebody doesn't like whatever it may be. We may suffer within our families. We may suffer within our job. We may suffer at some other place. But when we do it, we have to walk as Christ, meaning what? We've got to bear it. But I'm better than that. I deserve better. Isn't that what we're told and, and is bombarded on TV? You deserve this. You deserve this right now. You deserve this. We deserve hell. We didn't deserve the grace of God. We didn't deserve the love of God. We deserved eternal punishment because of our rebellion against him. But Christ bore our sin so that we would have a chance. We will be able to be forgiven when we accept his sacrifice on the cross. So what do we do in the midst of suffering? We bear what people put on us. You're going, I don't like this. Can I tell you something? I don't either. I'd rather punch him in the face. Don't say you wouldn't want to. Because if you did, you'd be lying. Okay. Wouldn't you rather go toe to toe? There's times we have to bear it. And if we use wisdom, Christ knew when to speak and when not to, did he not? When he spoke, he answered their questions. Are you the son of God? I am. But guess what? You're going to see the Son of God coming the clouds. And every eye is going to see him. And what did that do? It infuriated him even more. That Jesus bore believer's sins means that he suffered the penalty for all the sins of all who would ever be forgiven. And receiving the wrath of God against sin... Christ endured not only death in his body on the cross, but more, the more horrific separation from the Father for a short period of time. We saw that a couple weeks ago. The Father turned away from the Son. The wrath for our sin fell upon Christ. He became our perfect shepherd. Let me wrap this up. He became our perfect shepherd. Look at verse 25 in 1 Peter chapter 2. For you were continually straying like sheep, But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus became our perfect shepherd. In fact, John MacArthur said this in his commentary on 1 Peter. If God had not determined that all believers' sins should fall on Jesus, there would be no shepherd to bring God's flock into the fold. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, Became the shepherd and guardian of the eternal souls of all who will trust in his saving work on the cross. Why is this important? For this reason. In suffering, Jesus became our example, our substitute, and our shepherd. In suffering, Jesus became our example, our substitute, and our shepherd. Which means that what? Jesus forgave our sins, we're forgiven. He gave us an example to follow in, in, in the midst of suffering. And in the midst of suffering, if he's our shepherd, he will guide us as his sheep, as his people through those moments. Do you get that? We're not alone in that moment. If Christ is our shepherd and, our, and we're going through a suffering time, a hard time, a tough time, where everything seems like everything just got stripped away from us in some way, shape, or form, is Christ not in the midst of it if we are believers? He is. Because he's our shepherd, he would never leave us or forsake us, and he will give us the wisdom and the comfort that we need to go through those moments and to go through that time however long it lasts. That ought to make us jump up and thank him and say, hallelujah, thank you. Because we as believers, if you're truly a believer of Christ, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, Christ is with you. Christ's suffering and execution demonstrates, and I use that word execution because that's exactly what it was, demonstrates that one may be absolutely faithful to God's will and still experience unjust suffering. Christ's attitude in his death on the cross provides believers with the ultimate example of how to respond to unmerited persecution and punishment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse three and four says this. For consider him. Now look at that first two words, three words, for consider him. The word consider is interesting. It means to think, it means to reckon. But here's what it means. It means over and over and over again. It's in an imperfect tense in the Greek. That means as we walk through this life, as we walk through each and everything that we face, consider him over and over and over again. Now look at that with that understanding. For consider him over and over again who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Why did, why did the writer of Hebrews write that? Because we haven't gone through what Christ went through. Our stuff is so small compared to what Jesus went through. You have, when was the last time you suffered by bleeding in your struggle against sin? You haven't. Have you suffered in bleeding in your struggle as you were suffering? Well you go, well, you haven't you should have seen my operation. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus suffered in such a way that we won't even begin to experience that. But in the midst of our sufferings, we consider him because he's able to take us through. Why? He's our example. He's our shepherd. And he will walk us through. When you're young, this sermon means nothing to you in most cases. But as you get older, And you've walked through life, and you've had experiences, and you've had times where people misunderstood you, where people lied about you, where you've had to walk through sickness that you're going, I shouldn't have this. Why do I have this? You had to walk through financial difficulty, financial ruin maybe. Why did this happen? But when we walk through it, knowing that Jesus, our shepherd, is with us, he gives us an example, he comforts us when comfort is needed, he gives us wisdom to walk through it. He gives us wisdom to how we need to handle it, wisdom that what we need to say, when we need to say it, how we need to respond, how we not need to respond. Whatever it may be, he takes us through it. And we're going to have this in our life till the day we close our eyes for the last time and open them and see Jesus. When we open them and we see him, after our last breath, we will not have to worry about suffering any longer. For there's no more tears suffering anything in heaven like that. It says that in the book of Revelation. you saying, but Ron, you don't understand. Oh, yeah, I do. Very much so. When was the last time you heard somebody say when they were trying to invite someone to Christ? I'll say it again. When was the last time you heard in a presentation of the gospel that God loves you, but you're going to suffer for the, all your life till you see Him face to face. So why don't you come to Jesus? We always hear this: God loves you; has a great plan for your life, right? That's not biblical. You know what the plan is? We just read it in First Peter: that you will suffer. In fact, it'll be harder. So does that sound like a great, positive confession and invitation? Yes, it is. Because you're going to suffer in life, period. But here's the beauty of it. The beauty of following Christ is not in this life right here. It's in this life right here. It's my hope. He is my hope. We sang that. We sang that. Linda, are you back there, baby? Pull up the last song that we just did. Behold was it? Behold the Lamb? Living Hope. Hope. Pull up Living Hope. I want to show you something. Do you realize what you sang? How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. Go forward. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Person's getting saved, right? Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. How depressing. Let's go on. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Keep going. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom? such boundless grace. Are you seeing this? Are they talking about what the person is walking through? Or are they talking about what's going on in their heart? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. All this is heart. All this is hope. The king of king calls me his own. Beautiful savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. That's what it is. It's our hope. We may not see it physically here. We're going to walk through tough times, but he's our hope. Because when this life is over, we may suffer for how many years? A a breath but will we spend eternity without any suffering in absolute peace and absolute glory worshiping our God and Savior for the rest of eternity because he's our living hope. Where does hope happen? In here. But what do we do? Can I get personal for a minute? Just one second. You're going, have you not? (laughs) We are the greatest, we are, we're Israel. You know why we're Israel? Don't get offended. We gripe through the wilderness. We grumble, we mumble. We get all <clears throat> the women are going, God, I can't believe it. Do you, Martha, do you understand? I, do you, God's taking oh." And the guy's going, "Oh man, this all stinks, man, golly. Right? Uh, Guys handle it different. But if Jesus Christ, now put it back up, baby girl. If Jesus Christ is our living hope, why do we grumble? We're going because we're not perfect yet. You're right. God is changing our lives each, each and every day. But in the midst of that, no matter what we may be going through, is he your hope? Because if he is, you handle the suffering different. If he's not your hope, you handle it the way Israel did. That's why the Bible says we've been grafted in because we're just as bad as anybody. They probably handle it different than we do. Go in, poof, okay? Doesn't matter. Now, beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Is there another one? Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain, There's salvation in your name. What does salvation take care of? Our sin, but it also changed our life, right? Jesus Christ, my what? My living hope. Hebrews 12 again. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. We as believers, will suffer in this life. Following Jesus' example in the midst of suffering is a witness to others and brings honor and glory to his name. When I, by his grace, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, respond as much as possible As Christ, in the midst of what I'm going through, the pain, the suffering, it is a witness to others, but more than that, it honors God. Where are you at this morning?